Hello and welcome to Unsourcewald's first anniversary commentary track for Ang Lee's Hulk. This movie came out in 2003. It's one of my favorite superhero movies of all time, if not my favorite of all time. And well, let's see how this goes. It's my first commentary track. I hope it goes well. Let's get it done. So I'm pressing play right now. If you're listening along, here we go. Alright, so this sounds like a didgeridoo, and it's pretty off-kilter, I have to say. It does set you at unease. And I don't think we hear anything like this throughout the rest of the movie. But then we're hit by this incredibly classic score by Danny Elfman. When I first rewatched this, I was immediately reminded of Spider-Man. He did the scores for those movies in Hulk almost back to back, so there is clear overlap, and those quieter, melancholic beats in this remind me so much of Spider-Man 2's score. And it fits, just incredibly vibrant and colorful characters. But each movie plays up the emotional quotient for as much as it can. The score is being so similar, it just works given the approaches to those movies themselves. And here we get, like, just this amazing imagery, it just, it's pretty awesome. A lot of the imagery in this movie is honestly insanely good. And then we get blindsided by the title itself, and it's kind of emblematic of the identity issues that this movie has. Don't get me wrong, I love this movie, and I think most of those issues are hyperbole. But this striking logo turning squishy and lumpy is pretty damn goofy. The credits themselves, being what could be mistaken for Comic Sans at first glance, doesn't help matters. But damn it if this incredibly pumping score doesn't get the heart going. And it's a perfect fit for the hurried and heavy events that are going on right underneath it. This entire credit sequence is an out-and-out prologue, and it's kind of a movie in itself. It's like what Donner and Puzo did with Superman. That economy of time and story structure to fit every necessary beat into the running time. It might be a little bit pragmatic, but if done well, it creates this grand and sweeping sense of the plot and characters and the timeline, honestly. Nick Nolte has gone on saying that he feels like everything about this story and movie is mythic. And so, you know, we get this predestined, faded backstory, consequences, destiny, what have you. It just may be a bit jarring with the cuts in the sea life. But I think it really does work wonderfully in that we get just a lot of focus and attention on this one aspect of the story from the get-go. And it just so happens to tell the exact same backstory that Amazing Spider-Man those two movies avoided telling for both of them because the whole Peter Parker stuff in those movies were basically just ripping this movie off with Peter's dad's genetic manipulations allowing Peter to become Spider-Man in the first place. But for some reason they decided that it would be better to stretch it out over a trilogy and clearly they didn't have Ang Lee's panache or ambition or just boldness here. And this prologue, it, uh, it really goes for it and I respect that.
executive produced by Kevin Feig. People like to say he's this genius for masterminding and maintaining the integrity of the MCU, and props him for that. That can't be easy at all. But I can't help but think about how he didn't capitalize on this masterpiece, and it makes me wonder. It really does. And these screenwriters take a bow for this tight as hell script. In coming to interviews, everyone had nothing but glowing things to say about James Seamus. But more on him at the end, but seriously, God bless them all. It's interesting to me that the rise of CGI de-aging has totally put a whole subset of actor out of work. The kinda maybe looks like him actor. It might work best for the integrity of the movie, but I think we'd lose something in the process. This guy, Paul Kersey, is working his butt off the channel Nick Nolte, and it's charming as all hell. Although Young Ross sounds a lot like Clancy Brown. I think maybe he might have been considered for the role. I mean, it's pretty damn uh, uncanny. But here we get the whole gothic mythic tone as David seals his fate. This is where the score comes back in. It's really majestic. It helps sell it. It really does. Yeah, some goofy, goofy cuts here. All right, you know, hearing any baby cry is heartbreaking, and well, while Nick Nolte might think David is a monster. I sure as hell do, especially from the get-go here. Baby Hulk is too adorable. And here we have Moss again. Moss is going to be a kind of maybe heavily symbolic tie to this movie, but we'll get more to why and how that could be later. This here is why Nick Nolte doesn't think that David should be considered an outright villain because actions initially stemmed from concern for the safety of his son and like out of caring. It was easy to throw his own life away in a pursuit of science, but he, he can't ask that of Bruce initially. It's really one of those heartening ideas that this movie throws at you. It kind of gets caught in my throat. I can't lie. And well, when you think about it, really, poor Bruce does need that protection.
All right, now he's sounding more like young Sam Elliott. The wrench in all of this is that David is completely, totally insane to boot. Everything about that door is completely terrifying. Every time we return to it, it just gets more and more horrifying. And I think that it's really one of the little set pieces that helps a movie this long feel a lot more cohesive than it could because this movie is long and the way they parse out everything about that door and everything went on this scene every time we return to it is one of the greatest kind of little boons this movie has to itself. It's just intensely powerful. And here's what I mean about de-aging sometimes being better for the integrity of the movie because this fully grown man looks nothing like Eric Bana and he's kind of got no excuse at this point. Shaving cream covering like a huge chunk of his face and the fogginess of the mirror here makes me believe that they didn't know how to make that transition between actors anyway believable. So they tried to soften the blow. Although Bruce's eyes going green in any medium will always be cool. Always.
Ah, good old Stan and Lou, security guards. That's a whole movie entirely. Somewhere out there, it must exist. Now, this whole Krenzler idea annoyed me as a kid. Why waste time with a needless mystery? I was a dumb kid. This whole unearthing just works on so many levels, though, as Bruce tries to find himself. The layers of it all work in service of his conflicted state of being. And this whole scene is meant to be Ang Lee's thesis on Bruce. He said that he didn't find Bruce to be compelling, so he wanted to find an actor who could balance the illusory wimpy side with engaging likability and sympathy. You can debate his stance and ideas, but I think he found the right choice with Eric Bana. Jennifer Connelly likewise. There's just this kind of stiffness in the dynamic that I find insanely endearing and it just works because of the tone of the movie. They have this perfect emotional balance and tether and it just makes things like this pop despite both of the characters being really stilted toward each other. It is kind of endearing. And here we start getting more of the infamous comic book panels in full. Some work and some don't. Ang Lee has said that he wanted the effect of showing every angle and aspect of the movie at the same time, along with referencing comic books in general. I think they work a lot more in the action scenes, but we'll get more to that when those come up. In quieter scenes like this, they just seem like styles for style's sake, and that was reflected in reviews at the time. A lot of the reviews called this style over substance, which is funny given how much substance this movie does actually have. <laughs> this poor frog. 
When his eye exploded, I felt that. Although this movie would have been way different with a Hulk frog, though. Just adorable dialogue, undercut with sadness. It just is a whole summation of everything that's good about this movie. Josh Lucas is Glenn Talbot, who I didn't actually hate that much in the original comics. I thought he was a pretty cool character, and I enjoyed reading about him sometimes in the earlier Bronze Age stuff. But he is just the slimiest character in this, all by design. Lucas has said that he hates the character, but he made it play it up for as much as it was worth. And it works, it really does. He had been coming off apparently Sweet Home Alabama at the time, and it, he really wanted to not be typecast and break out of that whole shell. And he does it. He goes for it. He's also said that his take on Talbot was that his overriding nature is rooted in his ego and narcissism. And so he plays it pretty much as the Gaston in this story, and it's pretty incredible. It's flat, but it's incredible. Sam Elliott just exudes quiet, stern authority and anger.
I'll be real. This transition kept making me think of Harry Potter as a kid. Like, did they have this magic in Hulk? It felt so similar. It's a bit awkward to watch that after being exposed to Harry Potter. Now young Ross looks like Pierce Brosnan merged with Dennis Quaid. The actor they got for him was clearly a jack-of-all-trades. That's striking. And also, this is a hell of a weird dream. I've seen this movie so often lately, but I can't make heads or tails of this dream. And there's so many weird dreams in this movie that kind of makes sense when you think about it a little bit more. But this one, I really don't. And I'm not sure that I want to. It's uh, really creepy when you, when you just look at it straightforward. The poodle is actually scarier as a regular dog than it will be later on. Fun fact about the dogs overall though is that Nick Nolte had worked with some before in other movies and had picked up the trick of slathering himself in food between takes and scenes in order to get them to obey his commands and flock to him. Which is really funny to think that he would be doing that with just the immense bushy and hobo beard he has in this movie.
moss on the tree outside of his home. He has pet moss. It's a weird thematic tie. Some people have tried to decipher it, but the best guesses I've heard is that it's either meant to show how life can thrive anywhere, the encroaching nature of his past on his psyche, or just that it's green and the Hulk is green, so it just makes sense that way. Ang Lee has actually said the last one, but I think he might have just been facetious. Or it could be all three. I don't know. This movie goes for a lot of things. It would be kind of endearing how he tracks him down through just his DNA if it weren't so insanely creepy as well. Like on a scientific science fiction level, it could be kind of cute, except it's horrifically obsessive. I'd read that book. It kind of sounds hilarious.
It's really when you see it happen like this in live action that you realize how much debt Dr. Manhattan owes to the Hulk. I mean, the Hulk wasn't the first science accident hero, but he probably did it the most iconic and probably the best. And this has the root foundation of Manhattan's origin all over it. Yeah, that effect has not aged well at all. But the imagery is still pretty on point. The gamma bomb and the heartbeat and everything, it, it's pretty amazing. I don't believe for one second the other guy would be alright. That gamma blast was uncontained, and a body would not have been able to have stopped that spread. Then again, Bruce is like a gamma sponge, so it kind of checks out. The emotions in this scene are so raw and unchecked, it's kind of beautiful. It's Connelly's most powerful scene in the whole movie. She just knocks out of the park. So damn good. Every time we get back to that door is just chills. I haven't mentioned this before, but Nick Nolte is just a delight in this. There's something so odd, weird, and paternal about him. He captures that caring and menacing tone perfectly.
That's a perfect line for this character. He loves Bruce, but he can't help but think of him as creation too. Something he is responsible for in a more tangible, possessive way. Angley and Stan Lee call Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein as their base points for this character. But David here really is, what if Dr. Frankenstein cared about the monster to the point of obsession? There's still the matter of treason. I mean, if murder, treason, and possibly manslaughter only get you 37 years, then the government is more lax than I've been led to believe. Ah, uh, Hulkrat. The implications are horrifying. I think you fight some in a tie-in game. Can't remember much about that one though. The interplay between these two and their dynamic is so damn good. Despite blusters, they still care about each other, but they have such strong personalities and outer shells that it's just fascinating to see the characters bounce off each other. And the actor is really trying to get all those inner workings and machinations and motivations across. It's, it's uh, pretty astounding.
A slower, less stylistic scene would have really worked better here. But Eric Bana totally commits. He really tries to hold on to the long take of his face. And it reminds me a lot of that recent Joker trailer for the Joaquin Phoenix movie. The way Joaquin is definitely trying to displace himself and the character into something more primal. It's bold, I'll give it that, but it kind of edges the boundary of completely fucking goofy. And that's kind of horrifying. Maybe you can make the case that there's an element of body horror to all this. Like Trank's Fantastic Four done right. And it just makes you realize that I compare this movie to a lot of many later films. That couldn't do what it did okay. Any better. They mostly did it worse. And also. Hello to Ang Lee. Because it's common knowledge at this point that Lee did mocap for the Hulk with a full bodysuit. It's honestly that level of dedication that really helps this movie stay afloat. Lee believed in this movie and he wanted everything so right that he only trusted himself to even get the Hulk's movements exact. And he does a great job. Yeah, there's some campiness in the pantomime here, but also incredibly shocking and completely founded intensity.
Scenes like this are why Babyface Hulk just works. Is no one going to talk about how his pants exploded? I just realized that right now, that that hasn't come up at all. There's just something so fun about this initial meeting between Ross and Bruce here. He's just so gleefully antagonistic, smug, and aggressive about Bruce. It's an incredibly amusing scene to watch break down. You can almost see how Ross is straining not to call Bruce a milksop or something. Apparently while Ang Lee didn't advise the actors to read the comics, Elliot actually did a dive into some Ross comics, and it shows, it really does.
He said that he's just lucky that he had gray hair at the right time. But that's just modesty. He's perfect. This is one of Nolte's best scenes. I think that there are so many amazing sequences with him, which is probably the consequence of his insanity and just the multifaceted nature of that, because there's so many perspectives and angles of his character to cover, and they all play off insanely well. There's like five great standout scenes in this movie.
Alan Moore once said something about how gothic horror could be summed up as the incredible pressure of the past bearing down on the present. And that's what this scene is. It's the culmination of so many little things that no one here had any control over. And it's stressed and strained and it's electric. Oh boy, everyone's favorite scene is coming up.
Again, we see care and concern turn to this monstrous possessiveness and detached dehumanization of Bruce. Just like the flip of a switch, Nolte is brilliant. I think we can give Talbot a pass on this one. He's a cruel jackass, but there's no way he could have known the repercussions here. This Hulk guy is probably the best in the whole movie. We get the complete shot of Bruce's face, and it's really where Banner is able to sell that soft-spoken vulnerability and that quiet, impotent anger to the fullest extent. It's just hilarious what's happened to Talbot. He's just irredeemable. So good. And for as much as I hated this movie as a kid, even back then I loved seeing the Hulk grow. It just felt like one of the things in a movie where they knew what the Hulk was. Reductive thoughts, I know, but that's how I felt. It's awesome. It needs to be said, 
the CGI for the Hulk holds up relatively insanely well for a movie this old, especially a superhero movie. Some of the MCU stuff even looks dated a few months after released, and maybe the compositing and miming here is a bit off, but one thing the actors have stressed in interviews is just how much time and effort was put into making the Hulk a viable, real effect. And that really does come across when they interact and when you see the actual expressions and physical body language of the Hulk itself. Yeah, somewhat shaky there, but overall pretty good. In some of the behind the scenes stuff, you can even see on monitors that they went as far as to create a completely nude model of the Hulk body. And I have to tell you, I saw the Hulk's penis while doing research for this movie. Thankfully, he has very elastic boxers in this scene. And so we get to the Hulk dogs. I don't hate them or find them as dumb as others have over the years. I mean, the concept is decent. The scene itself is actually just kind of dull. It's not the most needless action scene in this movie, but it's not the best either. It's just way too darkly lit and dramatically uninteresting. Alright, that was pretty good. I think. I can't see shit.
So the darkness of this scene, the way he doesn't retain his underwear this time, makes me think that this was meant to have been a nude fight scene, hence the Hulk penis model. Which, honestly, would have made it a lot cooler. Then again, Hulk penis would have been hard to explain to parents bringing kids to this movie. Yay! And here is the midway point of this movie. Again, perfectly or at least planned structure. Everything is set up. Everything that needs to be revealed so far has been. And then we can recapitulate. So yeah, great stuff.
This is a great conceit. It's something that comes up here and there in Hulk comics, especially post-Bronze Age, where the Hulk is this protective shell for Bruce. It's also one of the current main themes of the Immortal Hulk run right now. It's a wonderful and magic idea, and it cuts right to the chase of it here. It's tied so directly and deeply to the world and the grounding it's done. Even the really early 2000s idea of nanobites is totally elevated by it. It makes sense. It just completely holds up. Unfortunately, this is where the movie starts to lose me here and there, just for a little bit. The first half definitely has a lot more of a steady and understandable and also very sort of direct structure to it. And the second half doesn't in places. So, I mean, Atheon is this military contractor that Talbot works for, but it's this insane, extremely comic booky underground hive complex. It's insanity. It doesn't work with what the reality of the movie has been setting up so far, but it's also really cool. And they have this whole damn Akira elevator, but it's insanity. It's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of jarring.
According to Elliot, when he signed on, Ang Lee refused to give him a script because they were having a hard time getting Ross right, and he wanted it perfect before Elliot read any word. And it shows. That whole speech, this whole speech, it's this higher, fantastical nature the movie exactly pinpointed. That inescapable string of fate and destiny, Nolte has pointed out that Ross's nickname is Thunderbolt as like this clear homage to Zeus. And it kind of is. It's, it's this whole grandiosity of it all. You have to believe that Ross believes it, that there might be some truth to the whole recurring nature that he's fearing. So we're all clear that the Nanomeds make Bruce into the Hulk by overdeveloping his body to fulfill its purpose. That checks out. That, that makes complete sense. I'll never understand how it does what it does to David. At all. So I guess the starfish DNA had a lot to do with it. It doesn't really check out. But hey, we got ourselves an absorbing man. And the noise here continues to haunt my dreams. It's unbearable. It's a billion times worse than nails on chalkboard.
like I've said, just the buildup of the suspense and tension behind the story is so impacting. It's like a cold feeling in your gut. Completely unnerving. This is what separates Ross from other later Ross actors. He's not a completely powerful force. He still makes mistakes. He still gets sidelined. But Elliot carries it with gravitas. It shies away from pathetic and only serves to feed back into the theme of repressed anger and rage. Which is what Elliot was going for. He always seemed to be like the Hulk and Ross are not different at all. And so... So things like this where he's really trying to restrain himself work because he knows exactly what he's doing. So previously Talbot had the excuse that he didn't know anything about Bruce's condition. Now he's just about the stupidest man alive. What makes this scene funnier is that the man has broken several parts of his body and is like in a cast. 
But Josh Lucas has gone to say that in his perception of the character, he wasted like two hours getting his hair just right in the morning before seeing Bruce. So yeah, I'd believe it. He's a rampaging monster when he's conscious and has some control over what he's doing in a very innate sense. But now these fools want to do it while he's knocked out. And that is bad science indeed, Talbot. Very bad science. Now this scene is Nolte's best. Every facet of the character, every range, mindset, emotionally and philosophically is on display here. It's a masterclass of acting, of writing, of directing, just to make sure every individual beat and punctuation lands just right. Narcissism, caring, anger, pettiness, and an innate inhumanity in him. It's, it's brilliant. This monologue, I'll let it play out. It's pretty magic.
I'm gonna need a moment. That scene always gets me. It's a powerful performance, stirring music, deafy, emotionally complex imagery, and everything rolling back into and forming the core of the Hulk as a character concept. It chokes me up every time. Depressing, yeah, but also has this weird touch of wonder. It's so odd. This is the dumbest idea anyone has ever had. Get the job to a grunt, Tal, that you can barely walk. Probably the least dignified death in movie history, but damn if he didn't deserve it.
I honestly feel so bad for the guys in these tanks. The Hulk definitely almost kills some of them, and it's nothing that they outright deserve at all. Or maybe those guys are dead, who knows. Although I admit, this is pretty funny as hell. Hulk's codename is Angry Man, that's perfect. There's nothing cooler than a hero who jumps. Flying, that's when you head out into the outright Silver Agey superhero sensibilities. Jumping, that's classic Golden Age style stuff. It's blunt and it's effective.
Again, moss, life, rocks. It's not the most understandable thing, but it's definitely meditative. Perfect match cut. It's that Ahab sensibility in Ross distilled into like two seconds, but also really underlines Elliot's previous statements about how the Hulk and Ross themselves are just too similar to really coexist. So yeah, it's, it's really great. It's the best part of this really, really long action scene, along with Hulk running as fast as the Flash. Because I'm being honest, this entire action sequence goes on for like 20 minutes, and it's the worst part of this movie. It's just so damn drawn out and boring. Overall, the way that this action sequence is handled is really kind of disappointing because this is where the comic panel's editing really should have hit their stride. I actually kind of wish there were more panels. In some of the behind the scenes material, you can actually see the storyboards for these action scenes were made up to look like comic pages. So at one point, that was definitely discussed. And those storyboards are beautiful. They're like wonderfully composed actual pages of the comic book. Apparently, they were reprinted as collector's items on like postcard sizes. You can find some of them online. And I actually hope to track some down someday because they look great. And uh, this action sequence is not that much.
As a kid, I always hated that the Hulk didn't talk, didn't say any of his iconic catchphrases or have his, to me, classic personality. But now a scene like this just speaks volumes about the character and Bruce's development. It makes every other appearance of the character not being able to shut up more like a monkey's paw. This though, this is enigmatic and I love it for that. This is just outright Bugs Bunny travel, and I can't see it as anything else.
Connolly has said that all she was looking at were pink tape markers, but good God, does she make it work. It's one of those things, like I said, that really helps, even in the bright light, this CGI rendering of the Hulk that's so completely neon green. It makes it believable. It makes it feel like a real, actual object. This might be the corniest line in the whole movie, but it sticks to landing. After a lot of introspection and a half an hour of action, the movie can afford to be blunt. It edges it though. It's pretty damn corny. The framing of Nick Nolte's eyes here is maybe the most effectively comic panel that this movie ever did. It it captures the tone. What I love about this scene is that it's really the way of the actions that you feel. That this is a culmination of something that's been a long time escalating. And not just because this movie is two hours and change long.
Nick Nolte has humorously pointed out that he thinks that it was a little bold and maybe a bit jarring to follow up a half an hour of action with a five-page, very dramatic dialogue. But honestly, what follows is more entertaining than anything that happened in that half hour. If there's any fat this movie has, it's everything that happened in the desert. This scene, it, it hurts. It hurts so good.
I didn't want to step over any of that. It speaks for itself. It's a masterwork. If he can't cure his son, can't kill him, the last recourse is just to destroy everything else around them. It's pretty perfect, and I love, I just love how he's appalled by the ingratitude. It'd be hilarious if it wasn't so depressing. God, it's so good. And now we get Zacks. David was truly a jack of all his trades in this movie. And good lord, doesn't he just look awesome? I just, I just did not appreciate this at all when I was a kid. He looks so good. Look at that. It's, it's pretty great. It's awesome. This fight scene too is, has to be one of the most enigmatic and impressively depicted fight scenes I've ever seen. Every frame is a picture here. It's beautiful. That's, that's the word for it.
This is probably the most zen finale to a comic fight finale ever seen. It's just completely centered and focused on catharsis in a very deep way. It's pretty, it's pretty unique. It's all about letting go. So when the Hulk speaks, he's earned it. It's that he's reached a revelation of his own. It's, it's great. This part, though, is truly disgusting. Nolte's groans and moans just make it so horrible and uh, ugh. I love this final bit so much. It's it's wonderful. Gets me every time. Given what we saw in their fight about the memories become manifest, was that actually Nolte's last thought? Was it just a recovered memory of happier times? It's bittersweet, it's ambiguous, but also emotionally satisfying while leaving open the ponderous questions. I think about it from time to time. Everything about this epilogue is bittersweet, honestly. It's somber. Nothing is really resolved, but it's a process, and it, it takes the will and determination to see it through. Everyone, in their own way, is trying their best to move on and to sort of like resolve things, and maybe it doesn't all work out, but that's life. And for as ridiculous as this movie could get, it captures that drama, and that's the hugest selling point for this. It's a magnificent interplay here. Just a lot of regret, but also hope.
So damn good. It's a bold choice to end this movie in Spanish. It didn't earn any points with me as a kid, but now I just find it pretty amazing. Dana, for his effort, does his best with the dialogue, though I have to give it to him. Hearing that line in Spanish is honestly kind of a trip. It's knocking me out of my senses. Panning out to the overbearing, ever-present green of the forest? That's just masterpiece. Even as a kid, I thought this ending was so damn cool. And it still is. And that's Ang Lee's Hulk. People like to think of Incredible Hulk as a soft pseudo-sequel, but honestly that kind of devalues the ending of this one. Norton's Banner doesn't seem to have made any real strides as a character and doesn't really have that much of a personality. Not like Bruce here. And I think it's better for the uneasy tension to remain. And for Bruce to have found a place where he can do good. It's both of those sides to it that I think really do help keep this afloat. The original plans for any kind of sequel, according to Seamus, the screenwriter, would have been to have made it more political, with a Native American reservation taking part in the plot. Which I feel could have worked, it depends, that's really all we know about it. Honestly, to leave off, I feel like a sequel could still work, if they based it on the immortal Hulk run that's currently going on. This movie introduced everything that they would need. David, the frat relationships, the nature of the Hulk, the presumed death, maybe even bring back Talbot as Abomination because this movie's version of Rick Jones just kind of disappeared, so who cares about him? That run very much carries forth the themes of this movie in a large part, so I feel like that'd be a kick to see. Also, this song, Set Me Free, is a jam. It makes no sense and doesn't fit this movie at all, but I love it. It's pretty great. It's a pretty great song. Anyway, that's it for my commentary for Ang Lee's 2003 masterpiece, Hulk. Hopefully someday it gets on the Criterion collection because if Armageddon can be in Criterion, then the Hulk should be as well. Thank you for joining me and see you again next time. Hope you enjoy listening to this. And let's go for another year of Unsourcewall.